0: General Robert E. Lee faced the most monumental crisis of his military career on April 2nd, 1865. By sunrise that morning, the Union Army had punched a huge hole in Lee's outer line southwest of Petersburg. He needed time for reinforcements to arrive from Richmond, but how could his depleted army by that time? Against overwhelming odds, a handful of Confederates made a suicidal, desperate last stand at Fort Gregg. Douglas Southall Freeman called this epic fight one of the most dramatic incidents of an overwhelming day, and yet it has been overshadowed by all the other historic events of April 1865. Many battle-scarred veterans from both sides described this clash as the nastiest of their four-year war experience our speaker will tell the story of this long-overlooked battle that took place in the waning days of the war in Virginia. John J. Fox III grew up in Richmond and graduated from Washington and Lee University with a B.A. in history in 1981. He then went on to serve on active duty in the U.S. Army for seven years as an armor officer and an aviator. His 2004 book, Red Clay to Richmond, Trail of the 35th Georgia Infantry, received the 2005 James I. Robertson, Jr. Literary Prize for Confederate History and a 2006 Research Award from the Georgia Secretary of State. His 2010 book, Confederate Alamo, Bloodbath at Petersburg's Fort Gregg on April 2, 1865, about which he will be speaking today, received a 2011 Ippy Award. Am I saying that right, John? <laughs> Ippy Award for Nonfiction. His articles have appeared in numerous Civil War magazines and newspapers. His newest book, Stewart's Finest Hour, The Ride Around McClellan, June 1862, was released in September of 2013 and just won a 2014 Ippie Award. When he is not writing, John is a pilot for American Airlines. He lives in the Shenandoah Valley. And please join me in a warm VHS welcome for John Fox.
1: Paul. I want to thank Graham Dozier who contacted me uh, about 10 months ago uh, about uh, speaking uh, for uh, the Battle of Fort Gregg and tomorrow is the 150th anniversary of, of that fight. I want to thank each of you for taking your time to come out here on April Fool's Day to listen to me. <laughs> um, my goal before I leave here today is that everyone will realize the strategic importance of the Confederate last stand uh, that took place at Fort Gregg. And why did one of the most famous historians of the war, a man from this city, Douglas Southall Southall Freeman, consider this last stand such a remarkable uh, event? And yet, until just recently, very little has been known about what happened uh, at Fort Gregg. Now, this project began for me back in the mid-1990s when I was doing research on my first book, Red Clay uh, to Richmond, which is about the 35th Georgia Infantry Regiment, and I discovered that some of those Georgians had the misfortune of being assigned to defend uh, Fort Gregg, and uh, that intrigued me because I've been interested in this war my entire life and uh, grew up here in Richmond, and... Fort Gregg's only about 22 miles to the south of of Richmond, and I had never heard about what happened. I had never heard about that battle. So when Red Clay to Richmond came out in 2004, a short time later, I needed to find something else to uh, begin to work on, do research on. So it just seemed obvious that I wanted to learn more about what happened there. And within a short period of time, I'd hit a lot of of different research facilities throughout this country, one of them right here, and by the way, uh, this research library here at the Virginia Historical Society is one of the top ones in the country with one of the best staffs for uh, a a historian to work with. Um, But it was not very long before I'd accumulated three box loads of primary material uh, from the men who fought on both sides at Fort Gregg, about 50 pounds worth of stuff, the letters, the diaries, uh, the photographs, and newspaper articles uh, from those men. Now, this is a uh, current, fairly current photograph of Fort Gregg. And the fort is still there. You can see the walls of the fort sticking up out of the ground. I'm standing on the Boyd and Plank Road facing to the northwest And this is just inside of Dinwiddie County, southwest of Petersburg. And you can see there at the bottom, that's the quote from Douglas Southall Freeman. He wrote in his biography on General Lee, uh, he referred to uh, Fort Gregg as one of the most dramatic incidents of an overwhelming day. In fact, Mr. Freeman referred to it as a Homeric defense, and yet he, he wasn't there himself. And... In September of 2009, as I was putting finishing touches on this manuscript, I found that battlefield research conducted by walking the terrain is not necessarily for the faint of heart. Uh, I called up my dad uh, from, from Winchester, and I, I told Dad that I wanted to I had still had some questions in my mind, and I wanted to walk the terrain east of Fort Gregg. So uh, would you like to come with me? He said yes. So I picked him up after my drive from Winchester, and we headed down to Fort Gregg. We parked, and we, we began to walk uh, to this area to the east of Fort Gregg, down towards the Rojoic Creek, and there's a valley there. And there's a dam uh, across the creek there, and uh, the, uh, the foliage was very thick. it's jungle-like. And uh, I found the dam, and I decided I was going to punch my way through this foliage. I told Dad, stay right, you you wait here, don't go in here with me. And I walked on in there. I got about 15 yards in. I looked back, I couldn't even see Dad. So that's how thick the stuff was. Well, I didn't think anything of that. I discovered what I needed to to finish up the manuscript, and we got back in the car, and we drove back to Richmond, stopped at Phil's Continental Lounge on uh, Grove Avenue for lunch. It wasn't late at night. And... uh, uh, after lunch, I dropped Dad back off at the house, and then I headed my two-and-a-half-hour's drive north to Winchester. And just as I was leaving Richmond, I started to itch, <laughs> and I started to scratch. So by the time I pulled in my driveway in Winchester, I was feeling pretty bad. I jumped out of the car, raced in the garage, dropped all my clothes off there, and ran upstairs and jumped in the shower. And when I was in the shower, I started to see these things that were attached to me. They were real small, about the size of pinheads. And uh, some of them hand-attached. They were still moving around. Now, um, I didn't sleep very well that night. <laughs> so the next day, put an emergency call to my doctor, and I went and saw him, and, and I heard something you never want to hear your doctor say when he walks in the room. Oh, I've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> so, um, he put me on antibiotics right away. So fast forward now to last summer, July the 4th, 2014. I'm w- hiking with my wife up on the uh, Mass Mountain Range. Uh, we're headed up to Signal Knob, and uh, Signal Knob's the famous point sticking north out of Mass Mountain Range, where Union and Confederate scouts would, would hike up to so they could get a good look up and down the, the Shenandoah Valley. It was a 10-mile round trip, so when we got back to the car, I found some ticks on me, and... Uh, pulled him off, didn't think anything of it. And a week later, I'm on vacation uh, with my wife over in, in Italy, and the second evening of our trip there, I noticed that I've got a raised target pattern on my leg, and that's a telltale sign of Lyme disease. Well, I'm in Italy. My doctor's all the way over here. So I called him on the phone. He called me back and said that you need to be on, on uh, uh, doxycycline right away. So fortunately, in Italy, you don't need a uh, prescription from the doctor to get an antibiotic, so at 7 o'clock the next morning in Verona, Italy, we find the nearest uh, pharmacy, and I walk in there, in my pigeon Italian, I tell the, or ask the uh, pharmacist that I tell her I need doxycycline, and she, uh, she looks at me, kind of puzzled look, and after a few seconds she goes, oh, doxycycline, doxycycline, <laughs> so, we, we got that taken care of. I got a box of doxycycline, and I was able to pound those over the rest of the trip, and I was able to put an end to uh, the beginnings of Lyme disease. Now, if you're squeamish, I suggest you cover your eyes up because I'm going to show you what my right leg looked like in 2009, and the rest of my body looked like it too. And I stopped counting at, that's my right ankle right there. I stopped counting at 210 bites. Uh, and the rest of my body looked like that too. So I, I was worried whether I was ever going to be able to wear pants again. And this is not my arm, but that's an arm of somebody that I found on the Internet, and that's the target pattern uh, of Lyme disease. So anyway, in, in a nutshell, if you're, if you're hiking around doing battlefield work, uh, I highly suggest that you um, use bug repellent um, on tops of your shoes and your pants so that you don't have something like this happen to you. Now this is a map that we had made for the Confederate Alamo and uh, we have Richmond to the north here and we got Petersburg down to the south and the light gray lines represent Confederate defense lines that extend from north of Richmond all the way down to Petersburg and then around uh, to the southwestward towards Hatcher's Run. Uh, The the dark lines represent the Union defense works um, that pretty much parallel the Confederate lines and the problem for the Confederate Army uh, at this point as spring of 1865 is coming around, is that uh, General Lee has got to man over 40 miles of defense lines with only about 50,000 men uh, by the end of March of 1865. Plus, it's been a pretty brutal winter, and uh, the cold weather has sapped the stamina stamina, uh, of a lot of the soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia and made it difficult to provide supplies to the men. General Grant, meanwhile, has got 100,000 men at his disposal in defense lines east of Richmond and extending all the way down to Petersburg. And by the end of March of 1865, Phil Sheridan is going to ride in from the Shenandoah Valley with another 10,000 men. Uh, But even bigger problem uh, is going to be that in central North Carolina uh, is William Sherman's army moving northward with 80,000 more men. and Sherman's army is only 120 miles south of Petersburg uh, at the end of March, beginning of April of 1865. So General Lee's got a gigantic problem. He cannot stay in place with his army and allow Sherman to arrive, which would then put Grant's total at about 200,000 men. Lee can't stay in place and let his army get surrounded by uh, the Federal Army of 200,000 men. He's got to figure out a way to extricate the Army of Northern Virginia out of the Petersburg works, And he wants to try to move across the Appomattox River and then go westward and then drop south to try to link up with Joseph Johnston's Confederate Army of the Tennessee uh, in in central North Carolina. This uh, gentleman on the right is obviously a post-war photo. Dr. George Washington Richards graduated from MCV in 1857 and uh, after the war, He uh, served as a doctor in the Elkton area just to the east of Harrisonburg. And he was the surgeon at Fort Gregg. And you can see the quote uh, on the top there in red. He's the guy that gave uh, the name of what happened at Fort Gregg. He called it the Second Alamo uh, in American history. Now, why would he call it the Second Alamo? Well, this is going to show you. 334 Confederates inside of Fort Gregg versus 4,400 federal soldiers. That's odds of one against 13. So if you like sports analogies, uh, if you like baseball, your Confederate baseball team can't get a hit because the field is filled with 117 opposing uh, union players or soldiers. If you prefer football, your quarterback, your Confederate quarterback keeps getting sacked because uh, there's 143. Uh, defenders uh, in the Union Army out in the field, and in fact, the odds were better at the first Alamo in 1836 in San Antonio, where uh, 260 Texans and their American volunteers fought against 2,500 uh, Mexican soldiers. That's odds of one against ten. So General Lee, because he needs to buy time on the west side of Petersburg, is going to give the Fort Gregg Garrison a suicide mission to hold at all hazards. And so the big question by late morning on April the 2nd of 1865 is going to be, can these Southerners, from a hodgepodge of different units, give General Lee the time that he needs to get the reinforcements brought from from Richmond, and somehow can General Lee then use that time to get his army out of the works around Petersburg? As I've done research through the years, I've discovered that the best way to to get a handle on what happened with an historical event is to read uh, what the the players, the people that were there, had to say about uh, their experience. And this is just a few here. The top one there, um, Major General John Gibbon uh, uh, served his entire adult life in the Union Army, a West Point graduate and uh, he was the initial commander for the famous Iron Brigade in the Union Army. He commands the Union 24th Corps that's going to attack Fort Gregg. He wrote that the struggle was one of the most desperate ever witnessed, and uh, uh, Captain Archie Jones in the middle there from the 12th Mississippi wrote that the slaughter was appalling. Captain Michael Egan, 15th West Virginia in the Union Army, um, compared it to a slaughter pen. Fourteen Union soldiers after the, after the uh, battle, will. Uh, be be, uh, recipients of the the Medal of Honor for their heroism and their bravery uh, at Fort Gregg. Uh, The veterans who were there, they never forgot what happened to them at Fort Gregg, and many of them considered this to be the nastiest fight of their entire war experience. Yet again, I ask, how come until recently has so little been known about uh, what happened there? This is the same map you just looked at previously, except I put some red arrows on there. And and the reason for that is because on the evening of of March 27th, something pretty remarkable is going to happen. Uh, The Army of the James, the Union Army of the James that occupies the defense works east and southeast of Richmond is going to receive orders to send four divisions from uh, east of Richmond down to Petersburg. And two of those divisions are going to come from John Gibbon's 24th Corps, Uh, And those, those soldiers, those Union soldiers are going to march from right here, they're going to cross the James River, the Appomattox River, and they're going to come around the east side of Petersburg, and those two divisions from the 24th Corps will head towards Bermuda 100. The problem's going to be is that General Lee does not learn about this huge movement uh, of of enemy troops in a timely fashion. (coughs) Uh, because if he had known that that many troops had moved from Richmond to Petersburg, then he would have gotten reinforcements sent from Richmond to Petersburg a lot sooner than the evening of April the the first. I want to introduce to you some some of the uh, key players in the fight on the Confederate side. In the middle, right there, with the two stars, is uh, Cadmus Wilcox, the division commander. He's commanding the uh, Confederate Light Division. And then the guy here at the bottom is James Lane. He commands a brigade of North Carolinians. Uh, the guy in the middle is Edward Thomas, commanding a brigade of Georgians, and then on the right, Nathaniel Harris, commanding a brigade of Mississippians. Those three brigades are going to have the men uh, inside of Fort Gregg. And interesting thing about James Lane from North Carolina, he argues vehemently multiple times on April the 2nd with Cadmus Wilcox because he, he does not want his men inside of Fort Gregg. He believes it's a death trap. Some of the players... Uh, On the Union side, I've already talked about John Gibbon there uh, on the right, uh, but the two divisions under John Gibbon and the 24th Corps, Robert S. Foster um, is a 30-year-old native from uh, Indiana, and uh, his troops will provide the first two waves that will attack Fort Gregg. And then John W. Turner, Brigadier General John W. Turner there on the lower right, um, he's a 31-year-old native of Saratoga, New York, 1855 West Point graduate, and his soldiers will provide... Uh, uh, the being the third attack wave against uh, Fort Gregg. Now this is an overhead view of what the fort look, looked like. It still looks like this pretty much to this day because the fort's still there. And uh, uh, we've got the Boyd and Plank Road right there just south and about 80 yards to the north is where uh, Fort Gregg was located. And Fort Gregg uh, was built in October of 1864 uh, with a sister fort located 700 yards to the north, called Fort Whitworth, and the reason those forts were built was uh, in, in the event that the Confederate outer line was ever broken, then uh, Confederate soldiers could withdraw to these forts and protect the east side of uh, or the west side of Petersburg. So that was the reason they were built, and that's exactly what's going to happen early on uh, the morning of April the 2nd of 1865. Uh, and Fort Gregg and Fort Whitworth are located about 1,000 yards to the west of the, of, of the inner line around Petersburg, and I'm going to show you where those are on a map in a minute. And Fort Gregg is uh, crescent-shaped. It's facing to the south. It's got an earthen wall that stands about 15 feet high over top of a moat that's filled with water right here. And across the back is a wooden palisade with a sally port entrance. Now, the main thing to keep in mind here is that Confederate engineers started to to build a connecting trench uh, towards Fort Whitworth to the north. The problem is they only got 30 yards uh, dug on this trench before the fight, and they then piled the dirt up around the northwest corner of the wall. And it's still amazing to me that no Confederate officer realized the ramifications of doing that because um, where that dirt's piled up is going to make it easier for Union soldiers to cross that ditch and then get a handhold on the northwest corner of the wall and pull themselves on top of the, of the parapet. Uh, that, that area is going to wind up being Fort Gregg's Achilles' heel. So we've got Petersburg here on the right, and the inner line that surrounds Petersburg is called, also called the Demock line, and it basically extends on the east side with the Appomattox River and then around to the west side and then Battery 45 is on the southwest corner right there. You can still walk into Battery 45. Um, Fort Gregg's right here, Fort Whitworth right there. That's the Boyd and Plank Road, which is still there to this day. And then at Battery 45 right here is where the Confederate outer line extends towards Hatcher's Run. So um, early, before sunup, on April the 2nd of 1865, there's going to be a gigantic attack right here uh, on the outer line. General Grant realized that if he um, took the 6th Corps and the 9th Corps and attacked uh, the perimeter of Petersburg, that he would find a weak spot there. And this is where one of those weak spots is going to show up. 15, 14, 15000 men in the Union 6th Corps uh, in brigade formation will punch right through James Lane's North Carolina brigade right there. and. Uh, the Confederate troops are so depleted that they're having to stand about ten feet apart because they've got so few men. And fortunately for the Confederates, when this breakthrough happens, majority of the Six Corps troops will roll uh, southwest this way away from Petersburg. This is going to allow uh, time for Confederate officers to grab Confederate soldiers and put them into defensive positions right here at Fort Gregg. And The red lines represent the two divisions in the Union 24th Corps that are at Hatcher's Run that receive an order at 7.15 in the morning to start moving towards Petersburg to attack. And as they move up the outer line, you can see what is stands in their way as they approach Petersburg. It's Fort Gregg and Fort Whitworth, which is precisely why uh, eight hours after this breakthrough, we're going to wind up having the big fight uh, that takes place uh, at Fort Gregg. And I just want to talk to you real briefly about the uh, uh, Robert Foster's division, the first troop brigades that attacked Fort Gregg. Colonel Thomas O. Osborne, he's a pre-war Chicago lawyer. He'll be on the right flank that initially attacks. And then Colonel George B. Dandy, uh, he's originally from Georgia, uh, enlisted in the Army in the 1840s, serves in Mexico, stays in the Army when the war comes, and commands a brigade that's going to be on the the left flank in the first attack wave uh, at Fort Gregg. Brigadier General Reuben Lindsay Walker on the top there, um, and he commands the Third Corps Artillery uh, in the Confederate Army. And he is a—he's uh, 37 years old. He was born in Albemarle County near Charlottesville. Graduated in 1845 from VMI. Before the war, he was a civil engineer. He's going to create some significant controversy because just before the attack begins, he will send an order out for all the f- the, the cannons. Uh, that are inside of Fort Whitworth to be pulled out. He didn't want to lose the cannons, and by doing that, it it brings on the Union attack quicker, uh, and because there's no cannons to support Fort Gregg um, out of Fort Whitworth, uh, it's going to mean that Fort Gregg will fall a little quicker. Uh, Cadmus Wilcox, who's the area commander there, is incensed at this decision, and he would write, continue to write well after the war about what what a a bad decision that was on the part of of General Walker, especially for not consulting with Cadmus Wilcox. Lieutenant Frank McElroy right here is going to command uh, one of the cannons inside of Fort Gregg uh, on the southwest or southeast corner, and he's uh, originally from New York, has moved to New Orleans, and uh, uh, on the right is one of his colleagues from the Washington Artillery out of New Orleans as well. Uh, Lieutenant Henry uh, A. Battles, and uh, he's going to command uh, a gun section uh, on the outer line that's going to wind up being captured during the uh, during the breakthrough before the Battle of Fort Gregg. So Lieutenant Colonel James H. Duncan from the 19th Mississippi, she's 26 years old, and he will be the senior commander uh, inside of Fort Gregg once the battle begins. Lieutenant George H. Snow from the 33rd North Carolina, he's put in charge of uh, the, the uh, North Carolinians uh, from Lane's Brigade that wind up inside of Fort Gregg. So these Confederates are getting ready to face an incredible onslaught, and what I want to do is read to you a brief uh, excerpt from uh, the Confederate Alamo. The clusters of Confederates who arrived at the North Sally port to Fort Gregg needed more ammunition. Lieutenant Frank McElroy's men from the Third Company, Washington Artillery, had already been joined at the fort by a handful of 3rd Corps artillerists, and these men scrambled around the parapets gathering piles of extra rifles and ammunition. Those who glanced over the top of the wall saw thousands of blue-uniformed troops maneuvering in a semicircle around Fort Gregg from the south to the northwest. Sunlight glinted off the multitude of Union bayonets and other accoutrements. Many uh, Southerners marveled at the grand sight even as they reflected on the death and the destruction that would soon come their way. And the view made most of those uh, uh, unlucky garrison members work harder to prepare and strengthen their own firing spot in the short amount of time that remained. When John O. Andrews and George Heath from the 14th Georgia walked through the wooden door of the fort, a sense of uh, foreboding swept over them. And later, Andrews recalled, I readily saw that we had made a mistake. A similar unease swept over Private Homer Atkinson as he saw the heavy line advancing on the fort. The 16-year-old Petersburg native noted that we saw that we were in a, a death trap. So on the other side of the line, Tom, uh, Thomas Osborne and George Dandy's Union soldiers are getting ready to charge across 800 yards of open ground into withering small arms and cannon fire, and the time is going to be about 1 p.m. We've got the uh, Confederate outer line right here.'ve got Petersburg up in this direction, and we've got Fort Gregg right there with Fort Whitworth to the north. And the 24th Corps Union soldiers are going to have come up this line, and as they approach Fort Gregg, they then wheel left and maneuver into line of battle. And Osborne's men are going to be on the right, and Dandy's men are going to be on the left. Battery 45 is over here, and as, as Osborne's men move northward across 800 yards of open ground, they are going to be decimated by artillery fire uh, f- uh, from uh, Battery 45. That's about 1,000 yards off their right flank, a- enfilade, enfilade flank, right there. These Union men in the first attack line would face the brunt of the Confederate firepower, and those who survived and reached the steep front walls of the fort, discovered uh, a new problem, a water-filled ditch surrounded the fort on three sides. And this man on the upper left is Lieutenant Colonel Ellsworth D.S. Goodyear from the 10th Connecticut, and uh, he's going to lead his men uh, all the way up to near uh, the moat. He's going to be hitting the shoulder, fall down, get back up, and as he arrives at the moat, he gets a hit in the neck, and he, he falls unconscious. But when he comes to... He, he, he can't get up, but he, he lies there during the fight, and he, he's a witness for the next two hours of all the incredible fighting, and he wrote some great accounts after the war. This uh, soldier here on the right, Corporal David M. Jones from the 39th Illinois. Obviously, uh, the photograph was taken before the fight because he would wind up uh, having, a, having a leg um, severed uh, in the charge against Fort Gregg. This great photograph here on the right is the Stillhammer brothers, and the guy on the, on the far right right there is uh, Private William Stillhammer, from the 39th Illinois, Stillhammer was captured and fighting in the Shenandoah Valley in 1864, sent to a prison camp, and then exchanged. And so, uh, just before the fight, Stillhammer arrives back at the 39th Illinois before, th- before the Battle of Fort Gregg. And he, he vows to his colleagues, uh, his friends, that he will never be captured again, and he would not. He somehow made it across 800 yards of open ground, got to the moat, jumped in, swam across, it was over his head, pulled himself out, and then somehow spider-manned up the 15 feet of almost vertical wall. And as he pulled himself up onto the top of the parapet, he was hit in the leg, and he, he was writhing in pain, looking for cover, and then several more bullets stilled him, and he would die uh, up on top of the parapet wall. That's Lieutenant William W. Lamb, 39th Illinois, that first wave, uh, promoted from, f- from second lieutenant to first lieutenant the day before, killed in action in front of Fort Gregg. So the ditch, the steep walls, the withering rebel fire proved uh, too much uh, for the first attack wave. Osborne and Dandy's attack stalled with some 2,000 men sardined into the ditch in front of the walls. Both brigade commanders sent staff officers uh, rearward to find Brigadier General Robert Foster to plead for reinforcements. This is a current image of the of the uh, of the fort. I'm standing on Boyd and Plank Road, and I'm facing north uh, eastward in the direction of Petersburg. This is the southwest corner uh, of the fort here, and it uh, represents the avenue of approach of the 39th Illinois uh, that lost all those guys I just talked to you about uh, in the first attack wave. Also, the uh, uh, avenue of approach of the 12th West Virginia. Um, in the third attack wave, and the third and, and the twelfth West Virginia would wind up losing three color bearers by the time they got uh, their flag uh, on top of that fort wall, right on the southwest corner, right, right there. It's another image from the Boyd and Plank Road, and you can see the walls even better. And you, where, where the ground drops down at the base of the wall, that's still where the moat is. And uh, in fact, when I was out there five years ago, um, it was filled with water, um, kind of like like the way it was uh, back during the the battle. So along this avenue of approach was was the way that the first wave came. So with 2,000 men uh, stuck at the base of the wall, uh, reinforcements would then be sent in in the second wave at two o'clock. So some 700 more men come in and attack against the west wall from this direction And then 15 minutes later, the third attack wave was 1,700 more men. So by about 2.30, 2.40 in the afternoon, there's 4,400 men uh, sardined at the base of the wall in the moat, trying to bang their way through the the wooden uh, palisade wall uh, in back. And uh, this is a headstone from one of the uh, uh, color corporals for— Color bearers in the 12th West Virginia, this is the second one that would be killed, Private Joseph Logston. he's buried at Poplar Grove uh, National Cemetery just east of of, uh, Fort Gregg. Lieutenant Joseph Caldwell uh, was the third color bearer killed. He got the flag to the top of the wall and was immediately skewered with a bayonet, fell backwards on his colleagues on top of their heads down, down in the ditch. 28 years old, he left behind a wife and four children. This soldier is also from the 12th West Virginia in the third attack wave. He's one of the recipients of the Medal of Honor. uh, And he and two colleagues uh, climbed up that southwest corner wall and got to the top and they noticed that the the 12th West Virginia flag had fallen over and Confederates were getting ready to grab it. So they jumped up there uh, and got in a tug of war over over the flag. They, They were able to recover the flag. They replanted it on top of the wall and that flag served to boost the morale of a lot of the soldiers that were still down the ditch trying to get up. Um, and that's one reason that that uh, he and the other two guys out of the 12th West Virginia would wind up receiving the medal. Now, an interesting story, that's that's uh, McCausland, Joseph McCausland's actual medal of honor that he received. When the McCausland family heard that I was working on this project uh, back about 2007, 2008, uh, they contacted me because... Uh, the, the great-grandson contacted me because he said, hey, my grandmother has got the actual medal. I heard you're working on this. And, and so I was able to get uh, an image from them uh, to be used. So that's one of those neat stories that, uh, that happens uh, as you're, when you're working on stuff like this. This is uh, Sidney King's painting that the National Park Service hired him to do in 1961. Um, and King did a number of paintings for the National Park Service. This one's for Fort Gregg. And it shows the chaos and the mayhem in the latter stages of the fight. Uh, Most of the Confederates uh, have run out of ammunition. And they've had to resort to throwing bricks, throwing rocks, or swinging their muskets like bats to try to stem uh, the huge number of Union soldiers that are pouring through the rear sally port or over the walls. Um, In the foreground right here is uh, the only cannon of the two that are still operating and that's being manned by Washington artillerists, and that's 21-year-old Private Lawrence Berry that's standing up there on the gun platform holding the lanyard. He, Most of his gun crew's been shot down. He's double-canistered he, he's double canistered that cannon, and uh, as the Union soldiers come over the wall right in front, a bunch of them yell at him, uh, don't fire, drop the lanyard, and he looks at him and goes, shoot and be damned, and he drops his shoulder, and and uh, pulls the lanyard, and that gun goes off, jumps back from the recoil, and blows every Union soldier off the front of the wall. And those who were still standing off to the sides um, that didn't get knocked off by the concussion uh, then wind up firing at Barry and dropped him. He was hit multiple times, and he dropped dead right there uh, on the gun platform. Another interesting scene here that the artist captured is right there, the Corporal Henry Day from the 39th Illinois planting the regiment's flag on top of the wall. And to his left is uh, Captain Homer Plimpton commanding the regiment with his revolver in one hand and sword in the other. And um, the interesting thing is that the color corporal right there was immediately shot and wounded. And he would spend the next six weeks in uh, Union Hospital convalescing. And some officer came up to him and told him that he would be receiving the Medal of Honor for his bravery. And when he passed away in 1899, on his headstone there, he's buried at uh, at Jefferson Barracks National Cemetery in St. Louis. On his headstone right there, it says he's awarded the Medal of Honor for planting the colors on Fort Gregg. No paperwork can be found anywhere to show that he was a recipient of the Medal of Honor. Okay, and uh, but the interesting thing is that the other fourteen recipients were also color bearers that did the same thing as he did, so it's an interesting story. And what I want to do is read read an excerpt from Captain Homer Plimpton um, about his experience at Fort Gregg. He wrote this letter on April twenty seventh of eighteen sixty five. Captain Plimpton said, "Into the ditch we plunged." The steepness and slippery nature of the sides of the fort for a time overcame all efforts to scale them. The men were nearly frantic in their attempts to gain the top of the work. The enemy continued to fire grape and mini balls at all who attempted to come to our assistance. It was only by digging footholds with bayonets and swords that we were enabled to work our way up inch by inch. We finally gained the top of the parapet, and now fighting was hand-to-hand for 24 minutes. Not 25, but 24. I thought it was necessary to use my revolver. I made use of it as I stood near our colors and fought the enemy. I was one of the first officers to enter the, fort, enter the fort and we were rushed over the top. The sight was truly terrific. Dead men and the dying lay strewn all about and it was with the greatest difficulty that we could prevent our infuriated soldiers from shooting down all who survived of the stubborn foe, not a rebel Escaped? Well, not exactly, because as the firing began to slacken and the smoke drifted away, Union troops poured over the walls and into the pit of Fort Gregg, stepping over and around the dead and wounded that lay all about. And this young soldier here had an immediate decision to make. Corporal James W. Atkinson there, he was 20 years old at the end of the war. He'd been wounded an incredible five times during the war, which is why he was their their color uh, corporal. And this immediate decision, he, he, he stood there with the flag, and he watched some of his colleagues drop their weapons and put their hands up, and they were either shot or bayoneted. So he must have decided that he didn't want to suffer that fate, and he didn't want that bloody banner of the 33rd North Carolina to be captured either. So he bolted out of the fort amidst the chaos and started running to the east to the safety of the inner line about a 1,000 yards away. And as the soldiers that were on the inner line saw this, this huge cheer erupted, uh, cheering him on to escape. Well, Union soldiers saw this, saw him running away. They yelled at him to stop. He, of course, didn't stop, so they started shooting at him. Several of them then began to chase him. And soldiers in Battery 45 then, through their binoculars, swung a cannon around and started lobbing shells at, at the Union pursuers, which put an end to the pursuit. And when Atkinson got far enough away, he turned back to Fort Gregg, took the flag, and started waving it over his head and cussing at the Union soldiers that had just captured the fort and probably flipping them some unkind hand gestures as well. <laughs> um, Corporal Atkinson then turned and ran to the rest of the line and the cheering erupted again and right then reinforcements had begun to, f- to fill in uh, the, the, uh, the inner line f- uh, from Richmond. Um, Corporal Atkinson would be the only Confederate soldier to escape from Fort Gregg and he would surrender a week later. Now. This is Atkinson's 58 caliber Richmond rifled musket that he left behind at Fort Gregg. On the the left side of the stock, you can just barely read James W. Atkinson, 33 NCA for its 33rd North Carolina. On the other side of the stock, on the right side, the Union soldier that picked it up and kept it. He etched into the uh, into that side of the stock. Took at Fort at, Took at Battery Gregg, Petersburg, VA, April 2, 1865. Pretty amazing. I was at a Civil War show here in Richmond uh, a number of years ago, and I was introduced to a man that had this rifle in his collection, and uh, so he was kind enough to allow me to take uh, take pictures of it, and include them uh, in the book. Another interesting story of, 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 the f- of what happened at Fort Gregg. This is Fort Whitworth, a uh, modern photo uh, taken from the parking lot. Uh, so you can still visit this spot. It's on Virginia State's hospital property uh, on the north side of Interstate 85. And unfortunately, hospital officials have allowed some recreational buildings to be put into the middle. But you can walk into the fort and get a, get a pretty good uh, understanding of, of what it looked like. This is the uh, Confederate outer line just south of Fort Gregg. It's still there in the woods, about 500 yards away. And we're looking northeastward towards Petersburg. And uh, this is uh, Fort Owen, which juts out on the south side of the outer line right there. And uh, Fort Owen is a two-gun redoubt that was built at the end of March of 1865, and that's where Corporal Henry A. battles. Uh, and his handful of uh, artillerymen from the Washington Artillery were were captured just after the the breakthrough. So the results of this fight, uh, the battle had a strategic outcome on the end of the war in Virginia, more than 1,200 casualties. Fourteen Union soldiers would later receive the Medal of Honor. The entire Confederate garrison was killed in action, wounded in action and or captured in action. And there would be serious post-war controversy about personal and unit accomplishments by men in both armies well after uh, this war ended. So the brave men who defended uh, Fort Gregg accomplished their mission. Only 33 of 334 men walked out as unwounded prisoners. Fort's garrison sacrificed themselves, but they gave General Lee the time that he needed uh, to get those reinforcements from, from Richmond and shore up the inner Confederate line. Their desperate last stand blocked easy access to Petersburg for General Grant, thus robbing Grant of time, energy, and soldiers. And without the heroic sacrifice made by a handful of tired, grubby, and hungry Confederate soldiers at Fort Gregg, Lee probably would have had his army trapped inside of Petersburg. But Lee's army did escape that night from Petersburg and began their sad march toward the west. And without the effort at Fort Gregg, we might never have heard of Appomattox Courthouse. And now you know why Douglas Southall Freeman called this one of the most dramatic incidents of an overwhelming day. Thank you all very, very much. (laughs) And uh, in closing here, this is uh, taken in front of the War Department in May of 1865 up in Washington. This is Major General John Gibbon right here. He's got a few staff officers with him, but all... uh, uh, all the uh, Medal of Honor recipients uh, are, are, are standing in this crowd with some of their captured Confederate flags, and this is the only known photograph that exists of Union soldiers holding capt- captured Confederate flags. Now, these are 14 Union Medal of Honor uh, recipients from Fort Gregg. Um, I think we got time for, for a few questions. Who'd you point at? some great courage on both sides, and you spoke of the uh, Confederate artillery. The Union had good artillery, including mortars, which would have seemed to have lean, lean itself well to this campaign. Uh, to what extent did they use artillery, the Union? Well, th- th- there was no, no mortars, and you'll be surprised to find out that in this attack, the 24th Corps didn't have any of their own artillery. They left their artillery behind manning the defense lines east of Richmond. So, uh... As this, as, as the twenty-fourth Corps approaching Fort Gregg, um, it is almost as if the artillery was an after, afterthought. Uh, s- some officers realized they're going to need some, they're going to need some heavier firepower. So they started to scramble around and found some some uh, sixth Corps artillery units. And in fact, uh, one, one, one unit is going to be the the uh, third Vermont uh, Light Artillery, and they're going to be. Uh, going into, in, into position at Fort Owen, which I just showed you, and they're going to be firing about 500, 600, 700 yards uh, directly north to hit Fort Gregg, and then also Fort Whitworth was right behind them, so anything that went long over Fort Gregg had a good chance of hitting Whitworth. And then the first New York light artillery uh, wound up uh, going, going into a position about a mile to the southwest of Fort Gregg, and uh, the reports that I came across uh, during, during the day uh, the first New York light artillery wound up lobbing about 600, uh, over 600 shells uh, at Fort Gregg uh, during the attack. Oh. Question. At so, wh- what point on April 2nd did Lee send that telegram to Jeff Davis indicating that he couldn't hold the lines and that Richmond needed to be evacuated? Uh, I'm sorry, I was trying to find, I'm having trouble figuring, because these lights are pretty bright, I'm having trouble figuring out where the voices are coming from. Okay. Go, could you say that one more time, please? Sure. Uh, What point on April 2nd did Lee feel it necessary to send a telegram to Jeff Davis indicating that Richmond had to be evacuated? It was uh, uh, early in the morning of April 2nd. uh, He he finally found out what had happened at Five Forks the day before. So, everything on the Union right flank, or on the right flank out there west of Petersburg, had been cut off. Uh, So, he lost all those troops. And as the sun's coming up, he realizes that this is going to be actually before the sun comes up. He realizes that he needs to send word to to uh, to Richmond, and of course, it takes a while for 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 the uh, uh, the information to get up there, which is the 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 situation where President Davis gets pulled out of church when he's at St. Paul's during during the church service. Yeah, were any of the uh, Confederate soldiers awarded the Medal of Honor, and if not, why not? Well, they. Uh, They've been awarded the uh, Confederate Medal of Honor, which, which, was, uh, which was designated well after the war. Uh, and, in fact, um, uh, se- several of the guys have, have been award- were, were awarded it in, a, in a, f- a recent ceremony. Yes, sir. Two questions. How much of the land today is protected from development around those forts? And the second question, of the 50,000-plus troops that Lee had in that vicinity, how many of them actually escaped to go towards Appomattox? Uh, the property at Fort Gregg is, is owned by the National Park Service, so it, it, that's going to be staying the way it is uh, forever. Um, one of the interesting things is that when they cut uh, the roadbed for Interstate 85, they put it right between Fort Gregg and Fort Whitworth, and to me it's a miracle that one of those forts didn't wind up getting des- completely destroyed. I can only imagine what those bulldozer blades must have must have dug up as, as they were building the interstate. Um, but the interstate goes directly between f- both forts. And if you're if you're going uh, either direction on, on uh, Interstate 85, you can look to the south if you know the right place to look in the field there and see the walls of, of Fort Gregg. Uh, you've got to exit to go physically go to the go to the fort. Uh, you cannot see Fort Whitworth from the interstate though, uh, but it's worth worth visiting. And your your second question was how how many how many men in, in Lee's army wound up uh, surrendering at Appomattox? In, in um, that that's a that's a good question. You know, the, the, it's really hard to get get a hands-on numbers because uh, Lee suffered so many uh, so many desertions during this period in the war. Um, one one thing to keep in mind is that William Sherman's armies marched through Georgia. They've marched up through South Carolina, up through North Carolina, and a lot of Confederate soldiers from those states are worried about what's happening to their family members. And, and, and some of those guys during the, during the uh, you know, January, February, March time frame have left. Uh, they've deserted, but they want to go take care of their families back home because they're worried about what might be happening to them. So I, I, I really don't have a, a good handle on how many soldiers – were able to depart to the Richmond-Petersburg uh, area and get to Appomattox. Uh, I don't know. Some, w- somebody in here might have a, have a better idea on that, but but I don't right off the top of my head. The Confederates, when um, where were they buried? Were they buried together? Let's say the monument at um, Hollywood Hollywood Cemetery. Um. Some of, the, some of those Confederates uh, from Fort Gregg were buried at Blandford Cemetery in Petersburg. Um, in fact, Washington Artillery's got a big monument there um, at, at, in, in Blandford Cemetery in the name of, uh, of uh, Lawrence Berry, who manned that cannon there and then got shot down. His name's on the monument. Now, whether he's actually buried under the monument, I, I, I just don't know. Um, I do know that, that right when the battle ended, both Union and Confederate soldiers were buried in place right there in front of the fort yeah um, Who was Greg? Fort Gregg Who was it named yeah a lot of people think it was named after Maxie Gregg but uh, there was actually a family named Gregg GREGG that had a house uh, just to the northeast of the fort about 300 yards away and that's they named it after that and the Whitworth family owned the property right around Fort Whitworth during the battle at Fort Gregg, what was going on at Fort Whitworth? Um, I would love to be able to go into a ton of detail. Obviously in a 45 minute presentation I had to leave that part out. Uh, There are two two regiments, uh, Mississippi regiments inside of uh, Fort Whitworth, the 19th and the 48th uh, Mississippi Infantry Regiments. Uh, Nathaniel Harris was at Fort Whitworth. Uh, Remember I mentioned that the four Artillery pieces had already been pulled out right at the beginning right as the battle was getting ready to unfold and Believe it or not the union units that approached Fort Whitworth from the west uh, Decided that they, they were told to support the, the attack on Fort Gregg Which to me in my mind means okay well when the fort, the attack on Fort Gregg erupts, and I'm gonna start firing at Fort Whitworth They lay there and basically just tra- traded traded pot shots with the Confederates inside of uh, Fort Whitworth They did they did not launch and all-out assault like the troops at Fort Fort Gregg did, and once Fort Gregg fell, then they launched their assault on Fort Whitworth. And uh, Nathaniel Harris realized that hey, we're going to get captured here just like our brethren just to the south did. We better get out of here because they they watched what was happening, you know, 700 yards away at Fort Gregg, and so they escaped um, and went running across uh, across towards the uh, outer line. And about 120 of them did not make it out of the 200. Um, anybody else? There we go. Did the inner line fold the following day? The, the inner line um, is going to wind up uh, under cover of darkness that night, a little after 10 p.m., General Lee issues an order for, the, for, for all the units uh, around on the inner line in Petersburg to withdraw across several bridges across the Appomattox. This, this is why um, I, I think what happened here is so remarkable because Grant, after the battle finished up at about 3.15 to 3.30 on this afternoon, they, they elected, the, the, the Union soldiers were so tired and had been so decimated, they elected to hold off and begin the attack again at 5 a.m. the next morning. Okay, and Lee was able to finally get reinforcements from Richmond and under cover of darkness withdrew. If, if, if these Confederates had made that, that suicidal last stand at Fort Gregg um, by mid-morning, 10 a.m. in the morning, 10.30 in the morning, uh, the 24th Corps with the 6th Corps, would have been able to continue north, northeastward and attack the inner line, and there was virtually no Confederate soldiers on the inner line at that, at that time. They'd have been able to walk almost into Petersburg, which is why I say that uh, there's, there's an outstanding chance that without the stand at Fort Gregg, the, the fighting uh, would, would have been door-to-door in Petersburg. Lee would have had an extremely difficult time getting his army out of Petersburg and then doing a, doing a, a river crossing under fire, and I think the war would have ended at Petersburg. There would have been wouldn't have been any Appomattox courthouse. Yes, sir. Uh, earlier, you showed up. That I think a Confederate major, major general was killed. What were the circumstances of his death? Uh, Lieutenant General uh, A.P. Hill. Um, A.P. Hill is commanding the the Confederate Third Corps. And, uh, which is all the area out to the south, to the west and southwest of Petersburg. And, uh, there was a huge, uh, union artillery bombardment the night before on April the 1st. It began about 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. and lasted until about 1. And A.P. Hill was in town at his headquarters, actually with his wife and daughters. And, uh, uh obviously having trouble sleeping. Um, and... The the, the the Union uh, artillery stopped about 1, 1 a.m. He finally dozed off, but then uh, a staff officer came and, and woke him up and uh, told him that uh, there was problems on the southeast corner of Petersburg as well. So he then got dressed and rode to General Lee's headquarters about a mile and a half away. And uh, while he was at General Lee's headquarters is when they discovered that the breakthrough had happened on the south uh, southwest uh, on the outer line, and so A.P. Hill then raced out of General Lee's headquarters with uh, a couple of his scouts in tow, jumped on a horse, and raced off to the west, and winds up running into uh, some Pennsylvania infantrymen several miles to the west, and he winds up getting shot and killed uh, there, and. Uh, you can actually drive, uh, and, and there's, a, there's a memorial spot in the woods with a marker where, where April Hill was actually shot and killed. And uh, b- I believe there's probably going to be a ceremony down there tomorrow to commemorate the 150th anniversary of his death as well. Please join me in thanking John Fox. Thank you.